Good afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, muscles, email, and chocolate. Also joining us is our special guest, Randy Hayes, the Oakland Sustainability Director. In addition, you can find out what element melts at room temperature. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, right here on Berkeley Rocks. Welcome back to Grox. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm getting over the uh, the euphoria of the Nobel Prizes, but... Uh... <laughs> you know, it's it's tough getting over that because I wish every day was the day they would, they would award a Nobel Prize. Yeah. It's the celebration of science that only takes place <laughs> once a year. Mm. Except at Christmas, I guess. And Easter. <laughs> so, uh, does it melt in your hand or melt in your mouth? Uh, well, hopefully a little bit of both. You like it sweet everywhere, huh? <laughs> I just like things melting. Pleasant. Like pakoras. Or samosas. So I guess one of the mysteries is, you know, how do you make chocolate that melts in your mouth and on your hands? And it turns out the uh, crystalline structure of chocolate is quite complex, and a uh, recent Research by uh, Arjun Yod and Ahmed Alsia at the University of Pennsylvania suggests that melting of a, uh, a solid can occur in the bulk and not just at the surface, which we think is happening for chocolate. Okay, so basically, as you're holding the chocolate interior, basically it gets warmed up inside. And... Right, so it's melting in the inside as well as oh. the surface. And they did this by uh, taking some um, polymeric material, uh, somewhat crystalline material, and they found out that the uh, uh, by looking at the surface defects and where the uh, dislocations occurring, um, they can track the motions of these, uh, I guess, units inside the gel, and they found that the melting occurs not just at the surface, but at the within the uh, the bulk solid. So if we can recognize this also for chocolates, then we can have something that uh, won't just melt at the surface, but it'll take the whole bulk solid to melt, and then, then it'll melt properly in your mouth and not in your hands. Oh, very nice. So somehow the heat is being transferred efficiently through what you would think was not a very uh, heat-conductive Apparently element. so. Oh, well, uh, I'll add that to my list of uh, things to do. <laughs> Maybe it'll help me boil an egg better. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, this is a fascinating article. Uh, it's in a recent edition of Science. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I guess this is probably uh, news for if uh, you're eating too many of those chocolates that are melting in your hand. <laughs> hmm. Your muscles might atrophy. My atrophy from um, having chocolate melting in my hands? Well, or basically just uh, being lazy and uh, sitting on the couch and eating a bunch of bonbons, I guess. You know, usually I ask someone else to feed me. That's how lazy I am. <laughs> is it is it through a tube, or do they just, like, stuff stuff in your mouth? Uh, they just stuff stuff in their mouth, but I think uh, they're getting kind of tired of it, so maybe I should get a tube. <laughs> where where do you find people to do this for you? I can't, I can't even get somebody to, you know, hang out with me, so... <laughs> Hey, Craigslist, man. <laughs> Everything's on Craigslist. You can list. find everything on Craigslist, you know. All right. Well, so it turns out that uh, researchers for quite some time have been wondering why uh, when people are sedentary and they don't exercise their muscles, they obviously lose a lot of muscle tissue and fibers. But uh, if they start exercising again, the muscles can rebound and bounce back. Hmm. I, wasn't it because you get increased blood flow and that stimulates hormonal mechanisms that stimulate, the, uh, I guess? That's true. But, I mean, so there, there's supposedly, I guess, some inherent fibers which are still intact upon which uh, muscle fibers can build. Oh, I see. So 
So it's not completely wasted, but just mm. like some of the bulk of the materials have been uh, removed from the scene. Right. So the idea is that basically um, researchers have been wondering what's actually keeping these uh, you know, latent fibers intact. Mm-hmm. And this was actually research that was done by Stephen Burden, a molecular neurobiologist at New York University's medical school. And he found that a particular protein called RUNX1 may be important. RUNX1? Wow, that sounds like something in prime rib. Well, you would almost expect it to be called, uh, you know, au jus sauce or something. I don't know. <laughs> So interesting work actually published in Genes of Development. What they showed was that uh, if they deprived uh, mice of this RUNX1 gene and then had them had their muscles atrophy, that they were not able to rebound as quickly or at all as much as normal mice. So uh, I guess there's hope for people who... Uh... Who want to be like Arnie, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> Build up tissue. Yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting. So, I mean, it probably suggests uh, this same mechanism might actually, you know, help people deal with starvation conditions and things like that. Hmm. Keep it in mind, I guess, uh, the next time you're caught in a starvation area. And this was published in a recent edition of Genes and Development. So, Charles, what's your favorite computer program? Uh, that would have to be um, Pac-Man. Pac-Man? I got Pac-Man fever not for as, the uh... past 25 years. <laughs> it's not as exciting as Microsoft Word. <laughs> Uh, you know, actually, I remember like uh, there's an old edition of Microsoft Excel, which if you uh, did a certain keystroke combination, you could get a flight simulator program in there. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> which you, I, you always wonder why these applications keep getting bigger and bigger, and nothing <laughs> nothing improves. Well, you heard about the uh, what was it? Uh, Grand Theft Auto. Apparently, there's some um, snippets of porn embedded in it. I thought the whole game was porn. <laughs> it was my impression. <laughs> You mean it's not just stealing cars? Uh, well, I thought the way these characters rejuvenate involved certain oh. actions. Cheeseburgers involved, I'm not sure. Mm, and mustard. Right. So it turns out if you use Word a lot, you may have found a spell checker to be a little bit lacking. Um, yeah, it seems to catch very few of my mistakes. It seems to catch a lot more than I should have. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, words like titrate become titillate. Okay. And uh, this is like actually a major concern among a lot of scientists who are writing papers up. And you get this spell checker, which uh, does catch all the science words. Mm. Sir Harold Croto, he got a Nobel Prize, uh, I guess, back in the 90s for his work with uh, the uh, buckyball. He qualms that the spell checker rewrites his name as Sir Harlot Croton. <laughs> okay, well, so has uh, Sir Harlot Croton <laughs> come up with a solution, for instance, maybe a uh, science dictionary that we could embed in uh, Microsoft Word? Uh, no, it's just uh, his complaints here. Um, and other, uh, I guess, more common ones are like proline becomes praline, <laughs> and a dimer becomes dimmer. Okay. <laughs> you can check it out at the uh, Soft Machines weblog. Uh, it's run by physics professor Richard Jones. All right. So, and finally, uh, Frank, uh, how much do you know about people you communicate with through email? Uh, nothing. I, I thought I was just talking to a bunch of dogs. <laughs> dogs playing poker, perhaps. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so it turns out that Nicholas Epley, a uh, psychologist at University of Chicago, has uh, done a research study in which he tested how people... Uh, perceive the people that they're communicating with via email. Hmm. So is he trying to see what the difference is between how people perceive over email as opposed to in person? That's exactly true, because uh, he's trying to figure out whether or not people hold on to their stereotypes uh, based on uh, whether or not they're able to receive social cues. Huh. So for instance, email is touted perhaps as being very useful for breaking down social barriers right. because uh, you don't get to see like you know things like race or whatever. Right. Uh, but he says that it actually may just reinforce uh, stereotypes that you already have about a person because there are no social cues to counteract whatever you might preconceive 
uh, about the person. Wow, so girls might think I'm a guy <laughs> looking for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know why they would come to that conclusion in any mean of communication. But <laughs> uh, Actually, so this is actually an interesting study. What he did was he had a group of uh, students. He gave them a profile of the person that they were communicating with, hmm. and he had them communicate with them either via the telephone or via email. Mm-hmm. And he found that uh, basically if they were told that the person was you know, substandard in some way, uh, then they held on to that notion through email. Hmm. But if they were able to talk with them over the phone, they actually improved their estimation of the person. Wow. The power of conversation. Mm-hmm. Huh? Right. So it just goes to show that uh, social cueing actually is quite important for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this type of, for, uh, for any type of interactions. Oh, darn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can't hide behind your email unless uh, they already think you're good. So <laughs> maybe it's a good thing to hide behind your email in that case. <laughs> That way they won't find out you're, or at least I'm an idiot. <laughs> uh, so very fascinating work. It was uh, carried out by, um, so it was very fascinating work. It was published in the recent edition of the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. All right, and that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Brett McGrosh listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Andrew McGuire joins us with Randy Hayes to talk about urban sustainability. So stay tuned. Well, with us today is our environmental correspondent, Andrew McGuire, and uh, our special guest is Mr. Randy Hayes from the city of Oakland. Angela? Thank you, Frank. We have with us today Mr. Randy Hayes, who's the Sustainability Director for the city of Oakland, California. He's an innovative leader and an ideal choice to head the sustainability initiatives for the city of Oakland. Hayes is founder of the Rainforest Action Network, a documentary filmmaker, and a human rights activist. Randy Hayes has led efforts to halt the destruction of the rainforest and to promote the rights of indigenous peoples. In doing so, Mr. Hayes has changed the way we view the ecologies of the rainforest. Mr. Hayes is a graduate of Bowling Green University and has a master's in environmental planning from San Francisco State University. He's now spearheading a national campaign to replace fossil fuels with wind, hydrogen, solar, and other renewables. As sustainability director, Mr. Hayes is developing a plan to make Oakland a national leader in solar energy with the goal of achieving 100% of electricity to be generated from renewable sources in the next 25 years. Welcome, Mr. Hayes. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. So could you tell us a little bit more about this concept of sustainability director? Uh, Mayor Jerry Brown here in the city of Oakland, uh, I think, started the first uh, uh, position of this sort that I'm aware of here in the United States, at least, uh, director of sustainability. Uh, it may exist in other countries. I did come across another director of sustainability and innovation uh, from Australia recently. Uh, 
Uh, but it's very exciting. You know, it's it's a, a very exciting town. Oakland's about 425,000 people, so it's a significant size city. Uh, it has a fantastic uh, climate, uh, fantastic sort of diversity of people here. Uh, a lot of challenges, but a lot of fantastic opportunities with the mayor and the city council so supportive of sustainability issues. So what kinds of things are going on right now in terms of sustainability? What are some of your plans? Well, from our per- perspective here in the mayor's office, the house is on fire. And the house, of course, is Mother Earth in uh, climate change and climate disruption, extreme weather events. These are very, very serious issues, particularly for a, a coastal city. Um, and we're on the bay here, so we're on the water here in Oakland, as is Berkeley, of course. Uh, we have to take these things really seriously, and when in doubt, we've got to take a precautionary approach. Uh, so we're looking at a comprehensive energy plan uh, to produce renewable electricity. We're looking at something called community choice aggregation, which gives the city the right to decide where those electrons come from. Uh, we want to buy them from renewable sources, not from nuclear power, not from fossil fuels. Uh, We're looking at um, um, reducing the electricity waste in the city, shaving megawatts off of our use patterns, uh, a 10-year megawatt shaving plan, and we're looking at uh, running the calculations on greenhouse gases. The city has set targets to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 15% by 2010. Now, that's below the Kyoto Protocol, from what I understand. Is that correct? Yeah, that's uh, below the 1990-year Uh, which was set by the Kyoto Protocol and the Climate Change Convention. That's right. Uh, We want to go further, of course. um, And so uh, we've been looking what would it take to get to, say, 75 percent below 1990 levels by the year 2050. And you may recall that recently uh, the California governor set targets to get to 80 percent below by 1950, which for a a state as big as California, the fifth largest economy in the world, um, that's an impressive uh, target to set. It does not sound like a realistic target from our perspective right now. I think there are a lot of people out there who are skeptical. So let's just figure out, or if you could explain, what are some of the things or the steps that you're taking now that will get us there? Well, 80% below 1990 levels, uh, uh, let's hope it's a realistic target because scientists are saying we need to get to at least 70% below uh, by 2050 if we're going to uh, avoid the worst of climate disruption and these extreme weather events. Uh, So uh, in terms of specific steps, you've got to work with the state and federal government around renewable energy, such as uh, wind and solar. And in particular, solar panels can be put within city limits much more easily than uh, wind machines, wind turbines can. Um, And so we've got an ambitious program to get five megawatts. Uh, That's enough to power uh, perhaps 5,000 homes um, uh, with solar power. Uh, We've got plans uh, to do some of that out at the Oakland airport or putting a megawatt on top of the uh, FedEx uh, package distribution buildings at the airport. We're looking at another half a megawatt of solar panels that could be placed on the ground between runways, which would be a very interesting uh, land use uh, in that situation. We've got some um, smart growth urban infill. The mayor has a 10K program to get 10,000 housing units built downtown Oakland to revitalize Um, uh, downtown Oakland and make it more of a European-esque kind of city. Uh, And on one of those housing complex, we're looking at putting in a half to a a full megawatt of solar power on those uh, uh, 600 to 900 units that we'll be going in. 
So I take it a lot of the initiative is going to be on um, government-sponsored buildings and that sort of thing. And hopefully we'll be able to get developers involved. Actually, I'm hoping more of the initiatives will come uh, from non-government buildings, commercial buildings and residential buildings. Uh, we need to do our part with, with city-owned buildings. Many of the city-owned buildings, at the very least, have had lighting retrofits to put in energy-efficient lighting. And uh, we do have a megawatt of solar going on various city-owned buildings here in Oakland uh, this year. But, um, uh, for example, the uh, what's called the Uptown Development Project, which is starting at more like 600, moving towards closer to 1,000 uh, apartment units, uh, that that's a privately owned or commercial enterprise, and we hope that they will develop electricity like um, solar electricity, like Coliseum Gardens and others. I guess the idea is to really promote the um, incentives and the rebates that are going on out there. Um, you also mentioned wanting to get a lot of clean electricity, so I guess that's putting a lot of pressure on the local utility like PG&E. Is they doing anything that you're aware of in terms of renewable energies at this point? Well, Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, they don't make that much money procuring the electricity. They make it transmitting it through their lines and billing us. And so in terms of procuring it, meaning where do you buy it from? Do you buy it from a large hydro up in Oregon and Washington? Do you buy it from a, you know, a coal-fired power plant in, in Arizona? Do you buy it from wind and solar? So PG&E has actually been uh, relatively cooperative around community choice aggregation. Uh, it doesn't threaten their profit base. Like any large institution, there are some people recalcitrant to change and some people uh, on the inside quite wanting to see a lot more renewable electricity. The state has a mandate to get to 20% by 2017, and PG&E will need to abide by that. But the city of Oakland and the city of Berkeley, for instance, would like to get to 50% renewable electricity by 2017. There hasn't been any major technological breakthrough, I guess, that would help the price go down. Uh, you keep hearing that that's, you know just around the corner, whether it's nanotechnology or something strange like that, uh, that I don't fully understand. There are people looking at uh, bringing the price down through the economies of scale, not so much of manufacturing, but installation and looking at systems of installation, because uh, that's actually where a lot of the uh, costs are in the installation. So I'm still convinced that the price will come down. It hasn't come down uh, terribly much in the last few years. You're right. Uh, but let's keep hoping. Well, the word subsidy generally has a pejorative ring to it in, in, in this country here. We've got to get rid of those bad subsidies. Um, the positive side of a subsidy for something good for society versus something bad for society, like subsidizing you know, nuclear power or fossil fuels, um, is, is really an investment in the future. So uh, we've currently got you know, the various state pots that are investments in the future or subsidies as well as the federal tax credit, and that helps enormously. So uh, eventually it needs to get down uh, to where it, it outcompetes uh, the other sources. But you have to remember uh, other sources of electricity, like particularly uh, nuclear power and fossil fuels, are using a form of cheater economics you know, or cheater capitalism. They don't pay the full price of the cost. When the smokestacks from a coal-fired power plant are spewing all of that mercury and toxicity and acidity uh, that's going into the oceans, for instance, that's uh, probably, certainly the mercury is accumulating up and, and, and toxifying the bodies of, of uh, we who eat that fish, 
these are costs that are not incorporated into the price you pay for electricity from coal. With solar and wind, you don't have those kinds of toxicities. Uh, there is an operating principle, which is cleanest is cheapest. That's how the rules of capital markets ought to work. You should have to incorporate the cost of the earth and the cost of the future and the price you pay for poisonous electricity like coal and nuclear and, and uh, other fossil fuels. Uh, you mentioned a little earlier, I believe, that you're trying to quantify these somehow intangible. What we consider intangible now, what you just mentioned, the toxicity, are you working on ways of uh, somehow quantifying that and making it tangible? Well, there's a think tank in Oakland called Redefining Progress that's done some uh, uh, quantification of, of uh, some of these intangibles. Uh, they did a study of the nine counties that surround the San Francisco Bay Area. Alameda County is the county that, that Oakland is in. And you could look at, you know, $20 billion of capital that flees the country, or the community, excuse me, here locally from the Bay Area, from Northern California, uh, because of our use of fossil fuels. That money would stay here locally uh, if it were... Um, if we were generating our electricity locally. Yeah, business as usual is the operative principle there, and there's a lot of momentum around business as usual because people know how to make a profit, uh, sort of gaming the system, so to speak, um, in, in many cases when, when, again, they use, as I call them, cheater economics, uh, not incorporating the, the, the full cost of the goods and services that they're providing to society. What, can, what are some of the things that we can do as consumers uh, in terms of um, helping to uh, enable Oakland to achieve its goal? Um, you w mentioned something about um, reducing uh, the amount that we consume. I don't like to refer to people as consumers. It seems to commodify us and dehumanize us, you know. I think we're people who do consume. That's true. One of the things that we people <laughs> who consume do is we consume too much. So how is it that we can uh, live lighter on the earth, you know, in our personal lifestyles, eat lower on the food chain? I've tried to, you know, cut my meat consumption in half and then cut it in half again, you know, things like that. Uh, where I live, I need to have a car. I'm sorry to say I do use mass transit as much as possible, but at least when I did get a car, I got a hybrid uh, electric car. Uh, we have a very imperfect democracy in this country. We've seen so recently in the last two presidential elections. Uh, on a 1 to 10 scale, with 10 being the highest, or uh, democracy, you know, I wonder where your listeners would, would put uh, democracy in the United States. Myself, it comes in around a 4. Well, that's less than halfway there, you know. We're sort of minority shareholders in, in this country. It's a tough situation. So people need to be politically engaged. Uh, we do need to register. We do need to vote. We do need, I believe, to pressure all political parties uh, to do right, the right thing in terms of the earth because it's a crisis situation. Again, the house is on fire, and we've got to do a lot, and we've got to do it fast. You were the founder of the Rainforest Action Network, which is very, very impressive. And that was founded in 1986? 84. Could you comment a little bit on what inspired you to do that, to go that route? Well, my great-grandmother was a Blackfoot Indian. I grew up initially in West Virginia, where she lived as well. So I've always been interested in indigenous peoples, native peoples. And um, after graduating from college at Bowling Green State University, I moved out here to California. And I met a graduate student doing a, a thesis on uh, cross-cultural prophecies. 
and we went down to the southwest near the Grand Canyon and met with the Hopi Indians. And I lived off and on for 10 years down with with the Hopi in the southwest and those 100-year-old elders, you know, those wise men and women down there who really do have an oral tradition over thousands of years and a lot of wisdom. And interestingly, I met Native people from tropical rainforests while I was down there. So at a certain point, after completing a major project fighting uranium mining and coal mining in the Southwest, I started Rainforest Action Network uh, to really launch a, a national media campaign and popularize the issue here in the United States and help form a global coalition uh, that would work on those issues, putting pressure particularly on the giant transnational corporations, logging companies and mining companies and dam building companies uh, to uh, um, stop the dastardly deeds that they are engaged in and try to get our foot off the throat of the indigenous peoples in the tropical rainforest. In addition to raising awareness about the importance of the rainforests, um, you were also able to put pressure on the large corporations like Citibank, for example. Could you comment or tell us a little bit, a bit about that? Yeah, one of the campaigns actually before Citibank was Home Depot. Turns out Home Depot, you know, we all know those big box stores. Mm-hmm. Home Depot is opening up a new store about every 48 hours. So every other day, a new store of that, of that uh, gigantic structure opens up. Um, Home Depot tried to convey that it was a green company, an environmentally friendly company. So we wrote letters to them and said, okay, you got to live up to it. Get the old growth wood off your shelves. We don't want to see old growth mahogany from the Amazon. We don't want to see old growth redwoods from the California uh, redwoods. We don't want to see old growth wood from Siberia or the temperate rainforests of Canada or uh, Central African Congo uh, anywhere on your shelves. You know, we got the corporate cold shoulder, so we took to the streets. We organized demonstrations. When you don't have financial or political power, you have, you have people power. And we organized people, particularly on college campuses across the country. We set up RAGs, Rainforest Action Groups. There was a very active one uh, at Berkeley, the Berkeley RAG. And we put the pressure on, and eventually uh, we got Home Depot on one bended knee, and they agreed to get the old-growth wood off their shelves. And now, from what we can tell, they're doing a pretty f- good-faith job of doing that. On the heels of that campaign, we started uh, pressuring Citibank. Turns out Citibank, or, or Citigroup as they now are called um, as well, uh, is the largest private bank on the planet. And if we can get them to stop funding the bad and start funding the good from the standpoint of a socially just and ecologically sustainable society, uh, then we maybe have a chance to save this planet and save human civilization and any semblance that we know of right now. Hey, thanks a lot, Angela, for that. And thank you very much, Mr. Hayes, for joining us. We were just talking to Mr. Randy Hayes, Oakland Sustainability Director. To find out more about urban sustainability and Oakland's plans for sustaining itself, you can visit us on our website for the full interview. This is Berkeley Grosh listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what melts in your hand. So stay tuned.
what's the Wicked Witch of the West with the answer to last week's question of the week. Ooh, I'm melting, 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 but not at room temperature. What melts at room temperature? What element? Mmm, gallium. <laughs> oh no, I'm melting. Oh. And now Forrest here with this quick's question of the week. My mama used to say, life is like a box of chocolates. But every one, every one of them are equally as addictive. Why is that? There must be something special in the chocolate. If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at groxonhotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just enjoy some more boxes of chocolate. And that's all for this week's edition of Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at the Grox Science Show, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Grox, I'm Frank Lee. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.